Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois, where fall has fall, befallen us, I guess I should say. And we've had we've actually had our first dip below freezing just a few nights ago. Today, I think, is the perfect day to start talking about what we can be doing, maybe not with the plants, but what they grow in, the soil. So we, our special guest today, we have Dwayne Friend, Energy and Environment Educator. He's down in Jacksonville. Before we get to Dwayne, though, you know that I am not here by myself. I am joined every single week by Katie Parker, Local Foods Educator from Adams County. Hello, Katie. Hey, Chris. How's it going? You know, the the cold snap got me. Um, it, it kind of, it, it's like, okay, it, it's getting cold. Maybe I'm not ready for winter just yet. So I'm happy we're having a little warm trend right now. Yeah, I know this is a nice, uh, oh, back to normal for a little bit. Because it seems like it changed pretty early this year. I think it really did. And I, I wasn't prepared with all my house plants or anything like that. Everything very hurriedly got pushed into the garage and you know right now I'm like well maybe I'll just throw them back on on the deck for a little bit longer before I uh, find their spot indoors yeah and it seems like it gets really dark early I don't remember it getting dark this early in the past I uh, probably one of the the worst parts for me is how short the days get I, I actually wake up with the sunrise and getting to work on time gets harder and harder as we get deeper into winter. Oh, for sure. And of course, we are also joined by Ken Johnson, horticulture educator in Jacksonville, Illinois. Hey, Ken. Hello, Chris and Katie. I am I am in my home office, not in a parking lot this week. Well, I'm glad you survived <laughs> the trials and travails of the parking lot. What was the turnout of your parking lot survey? Pumpkin or apple? Nobody answered me. <laughs> you mean you couldn't get George to get him to come to the car? George is an Apple person, I will say that. By the way, folks, our survey from last week, Apple versus Pumpkin for fall flavors. Apple is by far beating out Pumpkin. I haven't, I didn't check this morning, but I mean, Pumpkin has like four votes and Apple's got about 20 some votes. So... Um, apple then followed by uh, cinnamon, which I should have included cinnamon, butter, you know, all the good stuff, sugar, and then butternut squash. And last is pumpkin. So sorry, pumpkin folks. It's because apple is the correct answer. That is true. We do love apples a lot, but we can't do, we can't have the world without a little bit of pumpkin spice. I guess that is just, that just makes fall fall. Well, folks, it is time to get to our uh, special guest today, Dwayne Friend. Dwayne is an energy and environment educator in Jacksonville, Illinois. So, hey, he is Ken's neighbor. Hello, Dwayne. Welcome to the show. Well, hey, thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, usually Ken and I are just staring at each other across the hallway. But uh, right now uh, we're, we're several miles apart. But uh, eventually we'll get back to that again and um, go from there. Ah uh, yes, the if you've ever been in the Jacksonville office, you know Ken and Dwayne. They set their offices up so they just stare exactly at each other <laughs> all day long. It's a big. They're very competitive. You don't realize this about them. They're highly competitive. Throw stuff at each other. <laughs> uh, he throws insects. I throw soil. So. <laughs> 
not never a better marriage of two things. So today, Dwayne, we're going to talk about soil, and I think fall is one of the best times to to really dive into this topic of the the stuff that we tend to walk on and kind of disregard and not think too much about the soil. And you know, kind of where I want to jump off for here, we've we've talked about several weeks, kind of about the weather and rainfall and all that. It's been pretty dry in central Illinois, west central Illinois. When we look at the U.S. drought monitor for, for the state, you know, we are seeing counties that are uh, un, uh, under some type of uh, either slight drought or moderate drought conditions. So, um, Dwayne, also, you know, your background also being in uh, weather and climate, you know, how is this going to play out in terms of soil moisture and plants? Well, for Illinois, that drought monitor that you were talking about, it, it has expanded that abnormally dry area up until a few weeks ago. Really, it was only in the uh, a small section of kind of the north central part of the state that was still dry, but that's expanded quite a bit. Like you say here in the last few weeks, we have not had a lot of rainfall in a lot of the areas. And if you look at the long-term outlook, even you know two weeks out, for the month of October, even through winter, those long-term forecasts are all saying averaging above normal temperatures and depending on which time frame you're looking at, it's either looking at below normal precipitation or maybe near normal precipitation. So we can be talking about this potentially all winter long if it stays true to those forecasts. And of course, during the winter, we don't think a whole lot about it, but if we're still talking about this in January, February, and March, we start getting into March and those temperatures start warming up, it could become a concern very quickly. So, um, you know, I think we all just have to keep an eye on it. And, uh, you know, if we do get close to normal precipitation, uh, it really shouldn't be a big concern. Obviously, we're not going to get a lot of uh, uh, evapotranspiration and uh, or evaporation during the, the winter time. So, um, you know, if we get near normal precipitation, we should be okay. But if it continues that below normal trend, uh, we could we could definitely have a concern for drought next spring. I've seen a lot of early fall color on several trees, and examining the the soil below them, you can see a lot of dry cracking. Um, maybe they're not mulched. Uh, I, I've I've been telling folks, you know, it, it's time to probably start watering trees. Uh, especially if you have any newly planted trees and most especially if you have any type of evergreens that have gone in the ground, you know, in the later part of the summer or fall. Uh, so would you say is something like good soil moisture for, for trees and shrubs, is that something that we should be encouraging uh, homeowners to be doing right now? Well, especially these uh, next couple of weeks where we're supposed to have at or above normal temperatures, there's still going to be quite a bit of soil evaporation taking place and transpiration uh, to a certain extent. So, um, yeah, we, we do need to think about watering those trees. Uh, a lot of folks don't realize how shallow those roots are. Uh, they're, they're actually, majority of them are pretty close to the soil surface. So, and that surface is obviously the thing that dries out the first or, or the most and the quickest. So, yeah, doing that, that general watering out uh, past the uh, the crown of the uh, tree and, uh, you know, not don't have to overdo it, but at least keeping the soil moist, moist enough to uh, allow those roots to take up some moisture would be a good thing here for at least the next couple of weeks. All right, so one question we commonly get, Dwayne, and I'm sure you've gotten as well, um, is that 
people come into the offices and they say, my plant, my tree, my flower, what have you, looks terrible. Um, what can I do to make my soil better? Um, is there any kind of magic bullet that we can use to kind of improve our soils to, and improve our plants? Well, one of the first questions we always have to ask, and we always tell our master gardeners this, is do you, have you done a soils test? And that's really a very critical aspect when we're talking about soils. And if we're trying to grow something in there and maybe it's not looking as good as it should have, we really don't know what we need to do with it in terms of nutrients, if anything, until we've got that soils test. And so that's my first recommendation is to, to get that soils test. And it's, it's not that difficult to, to get a soil sample and have it sent into a soils lab. Uh, it costs about 10 to, depending on where you send it to and what you're asking for, probably more like 15 to $20 per sample. But getting that sample and then finding out exactly if there are nutrient issues. If it's, if it's not, then you need to look at something else. Is it drainage? Is that a problem? Um, you know, is uh, uh, pH needs to be uh, to work on those kind of things. So uh, I, I really would suggest people getting that soils test first. There really is no magic thing that you can go out and say, well, okay, let's um, let's put this on here and it'll make everything fine. Um, that that's just not the the best way to go about it because you may be helping things and you may not. So, um, and, and I know we were talking beforehand about uh, soils labs and, and where they're located at. If anybody just goes online and just does a, a general search for Illinois soil testing labs, one of the first things that it should bring up is actually a U of I extension uh, site for soil testing labs. And it will go through and show you all the different labs that you can send uh, soil samples too. It'll also tell you a little bit about whether it accepts home samples, uh, whether it provides interpretation for those samples. So in other words, if you send it in, they will give you recommendations on what to apply for a landscape or a garden setting. Uh, and you do need to make sure that you let them know that it is for a, a home setting, for a landscape or a garden. Otherwise, they may give you uh, recommendations, but it may be on how to grow 250 bushel an acre corn. So you do need to specify that when you send that in. And there's a number of different labs uh, in the state that you can send it to. And uh, for what I always suggest is to, to call a couple of them ahead of time. If you haven't worked with uh, a soils lab before, uh, find out what they will do, find out their cost. Um, and if they have any specific instructions for sending a, a sample in, and go from there. Uh, that way, if, if you visit with more than one lab, you'll find out which one may suit your needs better one over the other. So uh, that's a pretty easy way of finding out where those labs are at. And in terms of just doing a, a, just doing a quick rundown on soil sampling, you don't need to send in a whole gallon of soil or anything like that. All you need is about three cups. Uh, just getting a, a sample down within the root zone of whatever it is you're going to be growing. If it's vegetable plants, you know, four to six inches, lawns about four inches, um, trees maybe a little bit deeper, but uh, just going out and getting a, a spade sample of about an inch thick slice, uh, getting, you know, six to eight of those within your, your typical garden area, your landscape area, mixing that together. Uh, make sure you don't have any uh, leaves, uh, undecomposed leaves or mulch on top of that, that will throw off the organic matter 
reading. Uh, so make sure all of that's out. But then uh, a good moist sample, not something overly dry. So right now this might be a little bit more difficult or, or really probably not the best situation to try to get a soil sample. Um, and you don't want it super muddy either, but uh, getting something relatively moist and, and sending it in and not letting it sit uh, in your car or vehicle for several days either. If you're not going to send it in right away, uh, put it in the fridge and um, then get it sent to the lab or take it to the lab, depending on how close it is, as quickly as you can. How often would you suggest that we soil sample our yards, Dwayne? And then also, too, um, should you keep consistent with your labs, too, or is it okay to switch up your labs from year to year? Well, supposedly, the lab should be doing the same types of tests and uh, coming up with consistent readings no matter where you're at. However, there may be a little bit of differences from place to place. So I would say that if, you, if you've gone to a lab and... You're going to be doing another one for comparison. I would probably stick with that lab uh, in that case. In terms of how often to test, uh, unless there is a major problem, I would not test more than every five or six years uh, for lawns in, in particular. There really shouldn't change that much in terms of pH, in terms of organic matter content, um, you know, nutrient value, and those types of things. So. Uh, you really don't need to, unless, you, again, you're having problems with the lawn or the landscape. It's really not necessary to, to test all that often. But if you are having problems, uh, you need to do that right off the bat so you can find out what's going on and then go from there. Yeah, we always say if, if you're just throwing stuff on the ground without a soil test, you're just guessing. That's exactly right. Well, folks, this is a question and answer show, and so we have questions that have come into the Extension Office, social medias, all around the internet and Illinois, about uh, questions for soils. So Dwayne is, is here to help us answer these. I'll kick, go ahead and kick this first one off. It's from Knox County. Now, this is for a, a church, and they have put in some new landscape beds and would like to plant a cover crop this fall. So Dwayne, what plants do you recommend for them? All right. Well, getting into this time in October, if we would have been talking about this a month ago, uh, I could have could have given them a lot more options. But um, as we're getting farther along in fall, it's the the number of options are becoming less and less. First, I, I wonder what it is that they're wanting to do with it. If they're just wanting to have something on there to kind of hold soil in place uh, and that kind of thing, and and this is usually the the crop that I recommend for any beginner with cover crops. It's a very hardy plant and it's very winter hardy so it will overwinter and that is cereal rye and it's also very cheap. Uh, that can work very well. That can actually work. You can plant that. Uh, I've actually seen some of it planted even in November. Now it'll it'll come up and it'll green up and, and the later you plant it it won't get as tall but Rye is very winter hardy, and so it can overwinter, and then it's going to come on in the spring. So then the other part of that then becomes you're going to have to terminate that crop, depending on when it is you're wanting to plant something into it. So you can either do that uh, by tillage in the spring. You can do that by uh, using a, a herbicide such as Roundup in the early spring to, uh, to kill it out and then plant into it. 
the later you go, uh, and this is done on an agronomic setting, um, you can let that rye grow until it heads out. And then if you want to just leave it there, uh, and this will lead into that next question, what I'll let you ask, but I'll, I'll just finish by saying that if you let that rye head out, what you can do then is leave it there and plant directly into that material once it's been crimped. And I'll use that special word and then I'll let you go from there, Chris. Well, so Dwayne, I know you have been doing a couple different plots studying cover crops and, uh, you know, crimping, which um, I guess if, if describe crimping a little bit. What, what, is, what does it mean to, to crimp uh, a plant? So what we're doing with crimping is we're essentially going to, to have that crop no longer grow and it's going to be laid down flat on the ground. So a crimper and a handheld crimper works for something like this. It's basically a, if you can picture a two by four with some good sturdy angle iron screwed onto it and then a rope attached to that two by four. So what you do is you go out and you want to do this all in the same direction, but you, once the rye is headed out and you really need to wait until it's headed out for this to work well, you go through and you press on that, that angle iron and that two by four with your foot about every four to six inches. So what you're doing is you're laying that rye down, but then you're also bending the stem. You're not breaking it completely, but you're bending it enough that water and nutrients will no longer flow through the stem. So it ends up browning and dying out. But what you have then is essentially a mulch layer laying on top of the ground. So then at that point, you can plant into it, you know, just move the, the rye around. And depending on how heavy of a seeding you can you do, um, it, it will remain there for a large part of the summer. The heavier layer that you have, the less problems you're going to have with weeds coming through it. And this is a, a, was a part of a, a two-year two study that I did um, down in Calhoun County doing this type of thing. We actually did... Uh, tillage radishes uh, that we, we planted in September and then followed with a uh, early October seeding of rye. The tillage radishes died out, but then we had to crimp the rye uh, then the following spring. And so what we did was we crimped it and then we planted potatoes into it the first year. We planted sweet corn in the second year. And um, we basically wanted to find out the feasibility of it, how well it would work on a in a garden or landscape setting. And uh, it essentially is feasible to do. Now, I've, uh, and I've said this before, whenever I present this information, are you gonna see angels and butterflies over your heads the entire time when this is being done? No, it's gonna take a little bit of, of work, a little bit of experiment to work with it. But, you know, if you're not really wanting to do a lot of tillage or any tillage, and um, you're, you're wanting to try to improve the soil by keeping that, that living root system in place. And that's really how that soil is getting improved. It's through that, that root system that's present throughout the fall and then early in spring, you're getting that microbial uh, fungi active for a longer period of time, which is beneficial then for any crops that are going to be planted into it afterwards. Um, <clears throat> it, it is feasible to do this. Um, 
But again, it's going to take a little bit of experiment. It's going to take a little bit of practice to get it to where you want it to, to go. So we actually did this as a, not only as a mulch layer, but we did it organically. We did not do any type of herbicide treatment. We also did it without any tillage. So uh, when we did have that first year crop, in between the rows, what we ended up having to do, and this is what you would normally have to do, is you would have to get some weed barrier because it's not going to be completely 100% effective in keeping weeds down. You are going to have some grassy weeds, especially growing up in between the rows. So you take the weed barrier, you hanker that down between the rows, and this works really well, especially when the temperatures are relatively warm. You keep that barrier in place for a couple of weeks, and then if you need to move it down the row a little bit more, you pick it up, bring it down, anchor it back down. And what you'll see once you remove that weed barrier is the heat uh, being underneath that barrier essentially cooks all the, the weeds in between the rows. And then if you've got a heavy enough mulch layer after that, you really won't have a huge number of weed escapes after that. Again, it's not going to be 100% effective, and you're going to have to do some weeding in between the plants within the row. But you know, looking at an organic no-till crop or garden with cover crops can work if you really want it to and if you're willing to, to work with it a little bit. Now, I've heard a lot of just keep – if you can keep the majority of weeds down you know, next to the plants – you can improve your yields. You can, and, and also when it comes to working in the field, harvesting, all, all that, it just makes things easier to have, uh, you know, a, more of a weed-free situation. So I can see how cover crops laying that down, uh, crimping, laying that down as a mulch layer can help suppress that. And then moving your, like a weed barrier, you kind of, you stagger that out over the season. Is that that's what I'm envisioning in my head? Yeah, and that's really dependent on how big of an area you have. If, if you have enough weed barrier, you may be able to do it all at once and uh, not have to, to move it up and down. But um, if you don't, then moving it every two weeks will work well. And the other thing I was going to mention in terms of crimpers, um, there are, even for garden settings, there are small uh, crimpers that can be put onto uh, you know, the front of, or back of a garden tractor. Uh, that can be pushed or pulled through that standing cover crop to crimp it that way also. So if you've got a larger area, uh, there are those types of things available for use as well. Another piece of equipment for my machine shed. <laughs> Ken, have you patented your crimping method? <laughs> my pulling the kids along on a, a snow sled? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I should have. So, yeah, so I did, when I did it in my garden this year, um, we burned it down with Roundup, um, and then to lay everything down, I pulled the kids on a, a garden sled around the garden to knock everything down. It took several passes and kids falling out, but we eventually got it done. And well, you and have I, the story to tell. <laughs> I do want to mention, too, that if someone doesn't want to go that route right off the bat, but they would like to have that cover crop there, again, you can terminate that crop either by tillage or by using a, a herbicide early in the spring right before right when it starts to green up and it will actually desiccate pretty quickly uh, especially rye if you do it early in the spring right when it's starting to green up and by the time you get into late April or May you really won't even see much of that existing 
uh, rye there anymore, which, you know, you're losing the benefit of having that, that living root system there throughout March and, and early April, depending on how early you start planting into it or putting garden plants or whatever. But, you know, if you're not wanting it there and you're not wanting to do the crimping route, you can do that if you want. Good questions. All right, so our next question, and you've kind of hinted at, hinted at this already, um, is also from Knox County. Is it possible to garden without a tiller? Uh, this person grew up learning to garden using a tiller, um, but has read that tilling can be bad for the soil. Well, and that, that is correct. And one of the things that I always talk about in my master gardener classes when we're talking about soils is that, and and people don't like hearing this, and, and I grew up on a farm, and I still love the smell of that tilled earth. Uh, when I'm running down the road and I can smell that, I'll have to roll down the window and stick my head out. I just love that smell of tilled earth. But unfortunately, whenever you do any type of tillage, what you're doing is you're releasing that pent up gases that are in the soil, which contains a, a fairly high concentration of carbon dioxide. And what you're adding back into it is oxygen from the atmosphere. As you do that, the microbes that decompose organic matter in the soil have to have lots of oxygen for them to function. So the more oxygen they have, the faster they're going to decompose that organic matter. And that has been shown throughout the world with research throughout the last 150 years. Whenever a soil is tilled, you're going to see a decline in the organic matter content of that soil. And especially for a, an undisturbed soil, when you first do that, that or Organic matter drop is very significant for the first 25 to 30 or 40 years. Then it starts to slowly level off, but there's still somewhat of a decline. Uh, so uh, if the less, I'll just say the less you till, don't go out and, and Chris, just because you maybe have a, a rototiller now in your shed, doesn't mean that someone can go out all the time just because you've got a, uh, someone's got a new machine and um, work that ground and work it and work it. And I know you wouldn't, Chris, but someone that maybe has just bought a new machine and really wants to use it, uh, thinking the more tillage, the better, that's not a good thing. Just if, if someone does need to till, just don't do any more than you absolutely have to to get the job done. That's that's the best thing. The, the less tillage that you can do, the better. And there's still the majority of folks out there um, you know, want to go the traditional way, want to go tillage. And I, I'm not trying to say that we have completely destroyed our soils. We have fantastic soils in the Midwest. Um, but uh, honestly, are they as good as they were, as productive as they were naturally uh, 150 years ago? No. We have uh, done things to keep up that productivity. But um, you know, we're, we've been very blessed with very young, very nutrient-rich, very high organic matter soils to start out with. And um, especially on the organic matter side, in some cases we've lost anywhere from 25 up to 50 or even 75% of that original organic matter content. So, you know, that's something that can't continue forever, whether it's through loss of organic matter by decomposition, whether it's lost through excessive soil erosion, um, there comes a point where things are going to have to be done differently if we want to continue with having these productive soils in place. And I'll get off my soapbox at this point. As I just added that I haven't tilled 
our vegetable garden at, at our house. Um, since we initially initially installed it, we kind of tilled everything up, and then since then, you know, whenever we want to plant something, you know, just dig a hole wherever we want to plant it. If we're planting a row of seeds, we just kind of dig a little trench and plant directly into that. And have you, so we haven't used the tiller now in I think four years. That's great. And we, and we do have some kind of compaction issues where we walk. And and last year we we did some of the tiller radish to help kind of break that up. But we'll probably need do you to do put it again. Landscape fabric or anything down in between your rows, Ken. So I I mulch the entire garden. Last few years we've done straw. This year I'd use shredded leaves to, to mulch with. And actually, I did uh, the, uh, back in the in the time of dinosaurs. I did a study back in the mid '90s on uh, using uh, uh, leaf mulch on different types of of crops. I, uh, that one was mainly looking at uh, things like uh, more of like pasture type crops, alfalfa and clover and stuff. And we found that you could actually put even on a standing crop like that. Uh, you could you'd be surprised how much you could put on there and not really deter that cop from coming on through it. So, uh, you know, there's a number of different ways that mulch can be used and and be effective. And the other thing that's that's going on when you've got those cover crops in place or or those types of things, if if you have a, a soil that's maybe been compacted or or maybe seems like it gets hard very quickly, part of that is probably due to the lack of soil structure in there. And that soil structure comes from those root systems of, of living plants are there. And that mycorrhizal fungi that's putting off exuding glomalin, which actually is what the, that superglue is that helps take all of those millions of microscopic soil particles and combines them into that soil structure. So and it, with a lot of excessive tillage, you destroy that structure. You don't have that there. So you don't have those larger pore spaces for water to infiltrate, for roots to get through. And uh, so you're losing that natural part of the, the soil system when uh, you do a lot of excessive tillage. Our next question comes from McDonough County. And we have a person that just removed their large above ground pool. Underneath the pool was a bed of sand and gravel. Do you think that they need to remove that material or can they just till it into the ground? More than likely, if it's got gravel in it, as well, depending on what type of, whether it's pea gravel or if it's limestone gravel in particular, uh, that's that can act as a very big barrier. And so, yeah, it would be a lot of work to work it in. If it was just sand by itself and it was a thin layer, they could probably work that in. But it, when you got gravel in there too, what they're going to find out is uh, that can act kind of as a barrier. To, to root growth in the future. So even though it would be quite a bit of work, I would probably suggest taking out, especially the gravel, as much of it as possible. But but Ken, I heard you had a special piece of equipment that would work for something like that. Am I correct? Yes. So in the house we bought, um, where we put our garden was where they used to have an above ground pool. And I, they must have removed a good chunk of the gravel already because there wasn't too much in there. But we um, actually built a little sifter with two by fours and hardware hardware cloth, and we just went around digging up soil and sifting it out. And then we we tilled and, and brought some more up, and that probably took the better part of a couple of months every night after work, working for an hour or two, and and most of the weekends to get all that sifted out. But and we still find some some gravel here and there, but we, we were successful in getting most of it out. Wear gloves when you do it. <laughs> <laughs> so what'd you end up doing with all the gravel then? 
Um, so we just put it, um, use it kind of as a mulch around our house, real close to the house. So we've oh, kind of okay. got a, we've oh, got a, go. some rock mulch and then um, hardwood mulch next to that. So I just put that rock barrier real close to the house and just go through and spray that to keep all the weeds and stuff down real close okay. to the house. Yeah. And put some in our driveway where we had holes because we have a gravel driveway. So we've got, you know, nice white normal driveway rock and then pea gravel and just a hodgepodge. <laughs> well, it works, though. Yeah. All right. And then our next question comes from Facebook. Uh, so this year the yard was too wet to dig in the spring, um, but then it dried out in August and the ground was, is like a rock. What can they do to improve their soil? Well, this kind of gets back to it almost sounds, and part of it can be the soil type. If you've got a soil that has a very high clay content to it, it's going to, to kind of become almost like concrete when it dries out. But if it's an area that's had a lot of excessive tillage on it and that's been going on for year after year after year, you probably have a lack of soil structure there. And if you're wanting to do something fairly quickly to try to maybe loosen things up, uh, if you could add a good finished compost, work that into the soil, that would probably start to alleviate things relatively quickly um, and help at least make that that soil a little bit more mellow make it easier for uh, uh, you know plant into um, and if you do have to do some tillage again not any more than you absolutely have to but uh, would probably make tillage a little bit easier um, in the long run you know if you could do a combination of that and cover crops um, both of those things would work pretty well but again it's not something that's going to happen in one year, you're going to, in terms of even what the organic matter content, the compost, you're probably going to have to add compost for multiple years before you're really going to see much of a difference in that soil in terms of it not being quite so hard when it dries out. If it was their yard, aeration would probably help as well, right? Yeah, that, that'll help some. Um, again, it's not something that will work extremely well, but it's better than nothing. I think you got you you're really like hit the nail on the head there Dwayne too. It sounds a lot like they have a heavy clay soil and sometimes depending what they want to do with the situation which I'm not sure what their goal was if they're they said yard, if this is lawn, if it's landscape, if it's a garden, um if you can avoid that by growing in say a raised bed, if it's a garden or um the if it's a landscape bed, amending that that land over the course of time with cover cropping, organic matter, I think that those are all viable things. Or then core aerating for lawns and top dressing uh, with the compost or topsoil. And speaking of compost, you have a you have a few composting programs coming up. And by the time this podcast gets aired, um, it might be too late for folks to sign up for the live sessions, but uh, can people listen to the recorded compost programs you're going to be doing this week? I believe so. Well, we're, that's that's the plan. We're going to, I'm going to be doing a, a session on uh, October the 8th at one o'clock and a similar session on October the 10th at uh, 10 o'clock, I believe. Uh, basically, the, the same type of program I'm going to be talking about, the compost process, but uh, kind of focusing on what works well for a composting operation, 
and what things you should not do. So uh, the, the title of the programs are composting do's and don'ts. So those are supposed to be recorded and we will eventually get those up on YouTube uh, for viewing at a later date if anybody can't make it for the live broadcast. We will include links to that YouTube channel, the Extension YouTube channel, in the notes below. And then for your last question, Dwayne, it comes from McDonough County again. Uh, this landowner has a strip mine pond with no fish, but other aquatic life such as frogs, turtles, and snakes. Um, the pond is also covered in all different kinds of vegetation. It has floating weeds, submerged and emergent plants. And then the pH of the water is pretty high. It's above 8. Can they spray the weeds this fall so they can stock the pond next spring? Okay, good question. Uh, for this time of year, for any type of pond plants that are on the water or submerged, it's really too late to do any type of treatment for them. And more than likely here in the next couple of weeks, they're all going to be decomposing and falling down to the bottom of the pond. Having said that, if there are things like cattails, you may still have a short window of opportunity, uh, even though we did get a frost a couple of days ago, uh, for those above water plants like cattails. And actually this time of year is pretty good for trying to control those because all the uh, food reserves are going down into the root system. So if you could uh, put some type of, of herbicide, uh, aquatic herbicide, on those, uh, you still may get some control of those. For the rest of the plants though, it's really too late in the year for that. And um, the one thing that I would suggest is for next spring, um, you can still apply herbicides even if they're planning on fish stocking. Uh, just read the label on the, the herbicides. We always recommend that um, in terms of herbicide application, uh, to try to do it as early as possible. That way it's going to be more effective. When you first start seeing those weeds, such as algae, for example, you may actually have to start doing that as early as uh, March for a good control of that. You don't want to do anything really after the beginning of July because by that point the water temperature is too high and if you try to kill out weeds after that, it's going to take out too much oxygen at once out of the pond water and you'll probably end up with a fish kill, not because of the herbicide treatment, but simply because there's little to no oxygen in the water. We always also recommend that you don't want to have a perfectly pristine pond. It's good to have 20-25% weeds or, or plants in that pond because they're still generating oxygen, so they're helping those fish by adding oxygen into the water. Um, it just becomes a problem when you've got an excessive amount of pond plants there and then they all die out at once and that will take oxygen out of the, the, the pond water very quickly. But, um, you know, if you've got a small amount of pond plants on there, that's actually a good thing to have. So uh, there's a number of different type of pond plants out there that people can um, look at in terms of IDing. Uh, one thing I will mention here real quick too is Purdue Extension has a really good new website on pond management, including information on uh, pond plant identification and then t methods of control, including cultural, biological, and um, uh, chemical control. So if someone just does a, a search for Purdue Extension Aquatic Plants, it'll, it'll bring that up. 
So uh, that's usually where I direct a lot of people to if they're not sure what type of pond plant they have or what they should use in terms of controlling it. Would they need to adjust their uh, water pH for oh. the pesticide thank, to be more effective? Thank you for reminding me that. Yeah, the other thing I did want to mention is they do need to, to look at the uh, labels very carefully and pH can affect herbicide uh, efficacy. So uh, they need to be very careful about that um, so that they don't waste their money. So they need to look at that label and see what it says when um, before applying uh, to see if pH will have an effect on how efficient that herbicide will work. Well, that was a lot of great information. Dwayne Friend, Energy Environment Educator with U of I Extension, thank you so much for being on the show. Sure, anytime. And thank you all for listening to the Good Growing Podcast. We are produced by Wendy Ferguson. The show is edited by me, Chris Enroth. Every single week we are joined by our faithful, committed co-host here. They show up whether it's raining, snowing, sleeting, or the sun is shining on their bright, sunny faces. Katie Parker, Ken Johnson, thanks for being here this week. Thank you, Chris, and thanks, Dwayne, for joining us. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, Chris, Katie, Dwayne. I'll see you again someday. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you guys should buy houses next to each other. Too. <laughs> well, sometimes I just drive by and honk. <laughs> That's who it is. <laughs> Ken, should we do this again next week? Yes, I think we should. We shall be doing this again next week. We'll be joined by Nathan Johanin, a commercial ag educator. He's going to be talking to us about pumpkins this time of year. Well, listeners, thank you for doing what you do best, and that is listening. And as always, keep on growing.